G'day, and thanks for joining us for this week's Two Ticks Town Talk, a segment of the Australia Talks podcast. I'm DK. And I'm RD. Please enjoy this segment from the regular podcast. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. This week, we're not actually going to talk about a town. We're going to talk about an island. Uh, Lord Howell Island, in fact. So, this little island sits approximately 580 kilometres off the coast of New South Wales, roughly in line with about Port Macquarie, just north of Sydney. It has a permanent population today of 382. So, it is very small. the history of our Lord Howe Island, though, is very, very recent because before European discovery and settlement, Lord Howe Island was apparently completely uninhabited and unknown to the Aboriginal and Polynesian people of the South Pacific. There has been no evidence to suggest prehistoric human activity has ever been found on Lord Howe Island, even after extensive archaeological investigation in 1996, which is really unusual considering the island is nearly twice the size of Pitcairn Island and it's roughly half the size of Norfolk Island. And Pitcairn Island is significantly more remote than Lord Howe Island. Pitcairn Island is in the middle of the Pacific, about halfway between New Zealand and Chile. And its closest neighbour is Easter Island, uh, which is about 2,000 kilometres away. So it is exceptionally remote. Uh, That Easter Island is the one with uh, the Moai, the big heads the big uh, stone heads yeah, that are yeah. looking at to see. Yeah. Um, there's a few, uh, there's a, there's a few places around the world called Easter Island. Very original. We like to reuse names a lot, apparently. <laughs> so the first sighting was reported, uh, of Lord Howe Island was reported on the 17th of February, 1788 by Lieutenant Henry Lidball Bird Ball, commander of the arms tender HMS supply, which was actually one of the ships in the first fleet. Uh, It was on its way from Botany Bay with a cargo of nine male and six female convicts to a penal settlement on Norfolk Island. On the return journey on the 13th of March, Ball observed what is now called Ball's Pyramid, which is basically uh, like a rock. Uh, shooting straight out of the ocean. It, it's They don't call it an island because you can't actually get onto it because it's just sheer cliffs. Um, I would urge listeners to just Google it because it's it's kind of almost like an obelisk in the middle of the ocean. It's about 30 kilometres north of Lord Howe Island um, and it's kind of almost ominous in its scale. It's, mm. it's, it's a bit unusual. Um, and... Commander Ball sent uh, a party ashore to Lord Howe Island to claim it as a British possession. He then named Mount uh, Lidbird and Ball's Pyramid after himself. How generous. And he named the the main island after Richard Howe, uh, first Earl Howe, who was the first Lord of the Admiralty at the time. I wonder if he gave him a promotion because of it. 
Permanent settlement. Yeah, I often wonder about that with the name. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it just seems a bit sycophantic and sucking up, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's definitely sucking up. Oh, I named an island after you. Oh, jolly, jolly good. <laughs> uh, so permanent settlement on Lord Howe Island was established on in June 1834. Three men, George Ashdown, James Bishop, and George Chapman, who were employed by a Sydney whaling firm to establish a supply station. The men were initially provided uh, were initially to provide meat to the whalers by fishing and by raising pigs and goats from feral stock. Interestingly, this was actually a cashless society, and the settlers bartered their stores of water, food, wood, vegetable, meat, fish, and bird feathers for clothes, tea, sugar, tools, tobacco, and other commodities not available on the island. Uh, that's interesting. In 1855, the island was officially designated as part of New South Wales by the Constitution Act. And from early 1860s, whaling declined rapidly with the increasing use of petroleum, which is a really weird quirk in history. The biggest industry in the entire world was whaling at the time, and it basically died overnight because we discovered... uh, oil-based hydrocarbons, uh, so petroleum, diesel, and and all the other derivatives. Uh, And so that meant the islanders had to explore alternative means of income. The whalers aren't there anymore, and they're not coming back. So Nathan Thompson, in 1878, purchased the Sylph, which was a ship, uh, and he made uh, the vessel trade with Sydney back and forth, mostly pigs and onions. Um, But eventually the sylph was tragically lost at sea in 1873. So they didn't have a lot, which definitely added to the woes of the island at the time. Now, we're going to rewind a little bit to 1869. The island had a population of 35, so very few people. And it was visited by Charles Moore, who was the director of the Botanic Gardens in Sydney, and his assistant, William Caron, who forwarded plant specimens to Ferdinand Mueller at the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, who, by 1875, had catalogued and published 195 species that were found on the island, which is very, very cool. Wow. So... Moore and Caron were accompanied by water police magistrate Peter Lawrence Collette, who was there to investigate a possible murder. Oh, murder! <laughs> That's right. This whole Two Ticks Town Talk is actually a murder mystery. So this, this was published... In the Maitland, Mercury and Hunter River General Advisor on Tuesday, the 15th of June, 1869. And I'll read this entire article as as it was published. The alleged murder of a man called John Leonard. Immediately on my arrival, and before it was generally known who we were, I had the accused man, Lloyd, arrested and took him on board my ship, as I could see from the nature of the island that it would be almost impossible to apprehend a man who wished to secret himself in the mountains. 
he uses the plural there, but there's only one mountain. <laughs> um, after a very careful investigation extending over three days, I discharged the prisoner, feeling clearly convinced that he, Lloyd, who is an old man, 70 years of age, having been without provocation, brutally assaulted by the deceased, John, a young man, a strong man of 32 years of age, had used his knife only when he believed his life to be in positive danger and when he had no means whatever to escape. Now, I have made one alteration to the story for clarity's sake. In this published story, they continued to make reference to John Leonard, the deceased, as Leonard. We don't, we've never actually been told Lloyd that's his surname. We've never actually told the accused man what his first name was. So because Lloyd and Leonard are kind of similar and to, to avoid confusion, I'm going to call the accused Lloyd because I literally don't have his first name. And instead of calling the deceased Leonard, we will call him John just to avoid this confusion. But at the time, they wouldn't what? have called him his first name. <laughs> I've got to say that I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. So just say that last bit again, because I know you're trying to avoid confusion. <laughs> Confuse everyone. <laughs> so the deceased is called John Leonard. Yep. The accused is named something Lloyd. We do not have Lloyd's first name. His surname is Lloyd. To avoid the confusion of Lloyd and Leonard getting a bit tongue tied, I'm going to call Leonard by his first name, which is John. So oh, the accused right. is John. Uh, sorry, the the deceased is John, and the accused will continue to be referred to as Lloyd. But of course, back then they would they would only uh, refer to someone by their surname. Right. So Lloyd, the accused, has been a resident of Lord Howe Island for almost twelve years and bore the character of being an industrious and peaceful man. The deceased, John Leonard, was an American a native of Lao in the state of Maine and had deserted at Lord Howe Island about five years ago from the American whaler, the Gay Head. It's an unfortunate name for a ship. <laughs> he lived with Lloyd for about two years when he left with Lloyd's daughter and they erected a homestead of their own. Captain Field... Uh, having read the marriage ceremony to them. So, of course, sea captains back in the day could marry people. You can't do that anymore, but... Um, oh, can't you? Since, that's, that's no. Not a thing anymore. Oh, okay. Right yeah, on. it's not a thing anymore, yeah. Um, or at least in the, the, the legality of Australian law, it's not a thing anymore. Um, since there had been constant squirrels between them, the young woman, Lloyd, being of a very passionate and violent temper and as I was generally informed, having complete control over John. On the 13th of February, the day before John's death, Lloyd and John were both aboard the Sylph, the ship, which had just arrived from Sydney. They went aboard together, mutually assisted each other in getting their stores, and came again on shore, apparently on very friendly terms. Mm. Lloyd then went to work at an angle where two fences joined inwards and where the bayan tree, palms, and other vegetation close 
in so thickly as to prevent the retreat of any man attacked there. That's a really weird way of saying he went to fix the fence in the corner and had no means to escape. Yeah. Um, but this is 1869. I love the old timely language. Uh, he was seen at work that evening by a witness, Wybro, who, with whom he left, saying it was too dark to finish the fence and he would come back in the early morning to do it. He was then using, in whittling pegs for the fence, the identical knife which he voluntarily stated he had stabbed John. Lloyd states that the next morning he returned to work and had not been there for more than two minutes when, in the act of stooping to pick up a baton, he received a severe blow at the back of his head. He turned around and saw John. Lloyd said, So you mean to kill me? John replied, Yes, you old, and Mooney too. John then pursued him into the garden and kept on assaulting him until he, Lloyd, received a violent blow in the pit of the stomach when, feeling dizzy and believing he had been killed, he used the knife with which he had been whittling the pegs, which he had in his hand when attacked, and struck John the blow from which he died. Lloyd gave himself up to the people who found a wound bleeding in the back of his head and the exterior of both of his arms. On the guard and chiefly from the elbow down, most severely cut and brazed. The wounds, as described by the witnesses, were such as would be received by a man in guarding his head. This so far is uh, confirmatory of Lloyd's statement. John, on receiving the stab, said... Now I shall get the gun and shoot you. But he was exhausted by the loss of blood when he reached home and bled to death, probably from want of proper and efficient means to staunch the wound. So he didn't even attempt to to stop the bleeding. <laughs> he just went oh. to go get his gun. And oh. it, it sounds like from where... It's not a really well described where exactly he stabbed him, but it sounds like it was possibly in the neck or uh, sort of where the collarbone meets the neck. Uh, they, they describe it as the shoulder, but that doesn't really make any sense. Um, and it, he probably hit an artery and he, he bled out reasonably quickly. Yeah. Uh, Lloyd wished at once to be sent to Sydney and volunteered to allow himself to be battened down or put in double irons or taken away in any way the people chose so long as he could but surrender himself to the proper authorities in Sydney. He never attempted to leave the island but always expressed his anxiety to be tried and have the matter inquired into. Oh. It seems strange that after being so amicable on the 13th, John would so suddenly and so violently assault Lloyd on the 14th. But the motive here is supplied by the fact that on the evening of the 13th, Lloyd's daughter, Mrs. John Lennon, as she was called, went to the house of a man called Thompson. You'll remember Nathan Thompson is the man that purchased the ship whom she expressed her surprise at not having received a letter from her sister in Sydney when the ship came back that day. When Thompson told her that perhaps it was because her father had written a letter saying that she was not his child and complained of her conduct generally, <laughs> another person also informed her that Mooney, 
another person on the island had written the letter for Lloyd. So that, and I believe that is, I believe it to have so acted on her mind as directly or indirectly to cause the attack on Lloyd next morning. It would also account for the expression stated by Lloyd to have been used by John. Yes, you old, and I'll kill Mooney too. Whilst Lloyd had many wounds and bruises, John had only but the one stab wound on top of the right shoulder, which would corroborate Lloyd's statement that he had all in all the time acted on defensive solely and had at the last moment only when he believed he was being killed struck John with the knife. Under these circumstances, I did not consider it my duty to bring Lloyd to Sydney, but calling all the people together, I explained the whole case freely and I told them the conclusion I had arrived at. I omitted to remark that Though John was sensible for an hour before his death, he never said a word as to how the affair had occurred or mentioned Lloyd's name to any of the people who were in constant attendance upon him, but only to Mrs. John, as she states. The whole evidence, therefore, against Lloyd is solely his own statement in a separate paper I have given a general account of the island so far as time has allowed me to inquire and observe. Signed, P. L. Colette. Huh. I d- read this and I was like, what a fun little murder wow. mystery that happened on the island. An island of 35 people. Uh, and this happened in June 1869. And wow, I just love the, I love the way he retells that. So Yeah. Yeah, I, look, I was I was surprised uh, when you led into the actual Lord Howe Island that it hadn't had any habitation. That was puzzling because obvious, obviously it was habitable. Um, yes. That's yeah. just a, a weird it's, thing. It's, it's sort of a weird mix of, for being so far south, it's kind of a weird mix of, it's almost like a subtropical island. Like it does have palm trees and ferns and things like that, but it's not really what you'd call like, you know, a tropical island. There's no like coconut palms or anything like that. So, And I'll, I'll finish off as well. So if we fast forward to 1931, yep. the first plane to appear on the island was a seaplane, of course. Uh, and in 1974, the Lord Howe Island Airport was completed and the seaplanes were eventually replaced with the Qantas Link Turboprop-8 aircraft. One of the most contentious issues among islanders in the 21st century is what to do about the rodent situation. Rodents have only been on the island since their SS uh, Makambo ran aground in 1918 and they've wiped out several endemic bird species that were thought to have done the same to the Lord Howe Island stick insect as well. Uh, There was a plan in 2016 to make to drop 42 <laughs> tons of rat bait across the island uh, and the community was heavily divided about the implications of this. Um, the island was due to be declared rodent-free in October 2021, two years after the last rat was found, but a living male and a pregnant female were discovered oh, in April God. 2021. So the eradication, contrary to many of the community reservations, has seen birds, insects, and plants flourish to levels not seen in decades. So a little bit of a success there. I'm sure if they they keep at it. Oh, they have flourished. Okay. Everything's flourished except for the rats. So contrary to what 
you know, a lot of people thought at the time it was done really, really, really successfully. So, um, so, so they did do a baiting program. They did do a baiting. They dropped forty-two right. tons of bait across the island. Oh right, I, um, I, sorry, I misheard that. I thought that was proposed. So they actually did. That's yeah, a no, lot they, of bait. yeah, they actually Jeez. did it. Yeah, um, and finally, I'd be amiss if I didn't mention in two thousand and two, the Royal Navy destroyer HMS Nottingham struck Wolf Rock, a reef at Lord Howe Island, and it almost sank. Huh. You can visit Lord Howe Island today by plane from Sydney. Bird watching, water sports, and fishing are the large tourist draws today. Um, and I really need to thank the Trove National Library of Australia for digitizing the newspaper articles that I used today. It's a little winner, that Trove, isn't it? Absolutely fantastic. Um, it was, I should say, as much as I mentioned that this was published in the Maitland Mercury and Hunter River General Advisor, it was also published, you know, how often a lot of uh, stories sort of make their way through a lot of papers. It was published in, in quite a few papers, but um, that was just the first one that I, I came across. So, Yeah, right. Oh, so very interesting. And I like that. I like that little murder. It's this mystery uh, one of it too. Look, the description by the um, uh, I can't remember the name of the bloke that that did describe it that was sent there to um, adjudicate or uh, he was the, uh, the water police magistrate Peter Lawrence Colette. The water police, yeah, that made the story. That was that was great. It was just it was such a it was such a a good description of the the agent. It's also it's really interesting to me what you find out with these two tick town talks. These little little sort of paths you can go down that sort of catch your eye. And yeah, oh, I enjoyed that. Yeah, I thought it would be fun to do. I was possibly thinking of doing maybe like Norfolk Island or something like that. Just just one of these islands off the coast that's a bit yeah. sort of quirky. And I I I went to Lord Howe just because it is a bit smaller and I didn't really know much about it. Um, and honestly, I was trying to find the story here, and then I stumbled across that and was like, "That's it's got to be it," because it is. It's such a fun little self-contained story as well. Yeah. Like this could so easily be made into a miniseries or or like a um, like a movie, you know, sort of a murder mystery, uh, a la Murder on the Orient Express type type situation, you know. Um, yeah. And I also love that the newspaper story was actually written by the magistrate. He yes. wrote, you know, it's it's <laughs> it wasn't handed to a journalist. He wrote it, he put it in and and um and it went around the country. So um absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Good one. <laughs>